We're halfway through just about. Um, next week uh, will actually be kind of the, the ending of the halfway, and then, and then Revelation starts over in chapter 12, and we go right back to the beginning of time, and, and we make our way through, and we'll see from a little bit different perspective um, of what God is doing. Why was Revelation written? We'll, we'll do our interaction time early. We talked about it. Is it written so we know exactly when Jesus will return? No. What's it written? Why? To give us hope. That's good. Yeah. Encourage us. Help us to stand firm. Yeah. What else? I didn't hear that, but it sounded good. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Hope, yeah. It gives us a very real picture of reality, doesn't it? It shows us what things are going to look like, and you know, I think we're going to end on that one. That, that, you did pretty good there. I think we'll, we'll just go right into it. Um, today we have a text, and, and it shows us the times in which we live, the point of our living, and what God is going to do. Um, and it is a neat text. Uh, it is a special text and that there's only one other one like this in Revelation. So if you remember, there are six seals, six trumpets, and six bowls. Or, sorry, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Um, seven's a big number. In Revelation, it means perfection and completion. When we get to the sixth seal, before we get to the seventh one, which the seventh one um, shows the final judgment, there's this interlude, this pause, this break in the flow that, that we would kind of lean in and be like, what's happening? And in that period of time, before the final judgment comes on the sixth seal, what we see is that God gives a special message to his church on how they stand firm. And he tells them, I have sealed you. I have numbered you. You are my people. And then, so we have this earthly view, and then we're given this heavenly view that we will stand with God before his throne. And there's this beautiful picture of as we're in this time of turmoil where we saw that saints will be martyred, that we are sealed and protected. And those meant to strengthen the church. And now we're going to be, we did the sixth, fifth and sixth trumpet last week. Next week, next week Ben is preaching. The seventh trumpet. So that's, that's exciting. Not only that he's preaching, but seventh trumpet. Um, but we're in the pause right now. We're in the in-between, the sixth and the seventh. And this is meant to cause us to lean in. And this is a picture of the church, of reality in which we live and how we stand firm. And we're going to see specific things on, on how God is calling the church, on, on what is He accomplishing. And so this is, this is an important, important passage. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to stand we stand when we read Scripture here. Uh, we do so because we believe it comes with God's full authority and inspiration. And we just want to do it. So we constantly remember that this book is like no other. It's given for the purpose of correcting, of training us in righteousness. Uh, now we're going to read a lot. Read uh, mostly two chapters, all of 10, and the first 14 verses of chapter 11. If you need to go up and down, that's okay. If you need to take a break, if you need to sit, uh, whatever works for you, um, or if you're able to, we'll stand the whole time. Here we go, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what, was, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. 
And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth, what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet called, trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heavens spoke to me, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey and in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, My stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a, loud, in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. God, there are are hard things to understand, but there are also things that you have clearly told us here. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to give us wisdom as we look at this passage, that we'd be strengthened in our faith, that God, we would see your grace and your love and your care and your comfort for the saints, for your children, and we would be encouraged by that. Lord, may we see from your word, the wickedness in which this world is, the sinful depravity that exists here, and the judgment that is coming. And God, may we see that you have given us a role here, that we are empowered by your spirit to preach the gospel, to proclaim the message of your son, Jesus Christ. And may we do that boldly, knowing that there is nothing that separates us from your presence. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're doing two chapters today. Uh, we will not be able to cover everything, so there will definitely probably be questions that you have on specific details that we're not going to be able to question or answer. Um, you're more than welcome to text those in. If we have some time, we'll try to answer things at the end. Uh, but real quick, I'll give you the breakdown. Uh, chapter 10, John is given a message. Chapter 11, John gives a message. So that's the way this works. John receives, and then John gives. One of the things that we have said several times is that in order to really understand Revelation, we're going to have to know much of the Old Testament. And you can't really avoid it. 
Revelation continually pulls from images in the Old Testament to make its point, to help us understand its message. And so as we're going through, uh, we're going to constantly be looking back. Revelation uses, I believe, somewhere around 500 references, either direct or indirect, to the Old Testament, which is far more than any other New Testament book. So what we have here in chapter 10 is actually something we have extremely uh, similar to the case of Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3. We're not going to look there, but feel free to go back and read the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3 of Ezekiel. But when Ezekiel is being commissioned by God as a prophet, what happens is God appears to Ezekiel. He hands him a scroll, which is written on it. Ezekiel is told to eat the scroll, uh, uh, signifying that God's words are inside of him, and he's then told to go and to proclaim the message, to give the message, showing that his words will be God's words. So that's the point. He eats the scroll, and I believe in Ezekiel he's told it will make his, his stomach bitter, as we have here, as he goes forth and gives a message of judgment. So it's very, very similar. John is being commissioned as a, as a prophet, largely, and he's going to go and give the very message of God. Now, that should clue us into Revelation 1. Do you remember Revelation 1 a few sermons ago? In Revelation 1, John tells us how he receives the message. This is John 1, or Revelation 1, 1 and 2, where God gives a message to Jesus. Jesus gives a message to an angel. The angel gives the message to John. John gives the message to the church. So very likely, this here is an angel which God has given the message to Jesus. Jesus now has the scroll. The scroll is now handed to the angel, and the angel now hands it to John. So very likely this is showing what happened, what John was talking about in Revelation 1, how he receives the message largely. And so John is being commissioned as a prophet, and he's now going to give the message to the church in chapter 11. But before, let's just make a few comments on chapter 10. Um, we have an angel, and he's said to be a mighty angel with a scroll in his hand. And this angel is described very similarly as God the Father is and God the Son is in either different parts of Revelation or in different parts of the Bible. This has led many people to believe this angel is Jesus, and it may be. But the same wording is used in chapter 5 where we have a strong angel there, and we know that one's not Jesus. Very likely he's not Jesus, but if he is, it doesn't change the, the message at all, whether he's Jesus or not. Um, we have a divine representative with a scroll, handing a scroll to, um, to John. And when he speaks, his voice is like the roar of a lion, and in response to him, we have seven thunders sound. Now these are probably, you know, we had seven seals Seven trumpets, soon we'll have seven bowls. So these seven thunders very likely may be some type of series of judgments. Um, but then in verse 4, John hears a voice. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So what are the seven thunders? We don't know. We have no clue. Now, we could stand and speculate and waste a lot of time, um, which may or may not be fun. Um, but we need to realize something. God hasn't told us everything. Like, even in a book that's largely written to help us understand how Jesus will return and, and how we are to live as we wait for his return, he didn't give us all the details. In fact, he hasn't given us all the details in, in the book about all the questions we've asked. Have, have you noticed that? Like when we're preaching through the Bible, we're reading, aren't there things that you go, man, I wish he had explained this more, and yet he didn't? There's a big debate, even in Genesis 1. Is there really you know, six days of literal creation, or there's not? Could we be more? Wouldn't it be nice to have more clarity there? Where, where did evil come from? We know God's the one who created everything, and that he's holy and he's pure. Don't you have questions that you'd like to know? I constantly have questions. Um, but we need to realize that God has given us information. He has given us divine wisdom. His Spirit helps us understand the things that he has given us, but he has not given us everything. And we need to realize that our God knows everything. He is infinite in his knowledge. 
Could, could a book completely reveal everything that he would have to say? No. Which is why we have an eternity to spend in his presence with him. And we would still not know everything. And so I, I say that, and I think it's good to bring our attention to that, that we pause as we go through Revelation and we go, okay, we're not going to know everything. God has given us a lot of details, what it will look like when he returns, things that are going to happen, but we don't know everything. So anyone that claims, man, I know exactly they're wrong. Okay, because it doesn't tell us everything. We have questions. Now, it doesn't mean we don't know anything, but we certainly don't know everything. And we need to rest in that and realize that will always be the case when we serve an eternal, almighty, infinite God. Um, but, but he has given us a message, and the message seems to be pointing us to, to preparing us for, for his return, for the final judgment. And I think verses 5 and 6 make that clear. Like, these seven thunders appear, and then we're told, nope, seal that up. There's something else we're going to talk about. And in verses 5 and 6, we see the angel who stands on the land, stands on the sea, which most likely reveals that God has authority over all creation. He raises his hand up into the heavens, <coughs> and he describes God this way. By him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. So we have an eternal, all-powerful God who created everything. And he says, the coming blast of the seventh trumpet, there is no more delay. It is coming. What we do know is that life as we know it on this earth is winding down it is coming to an end with every passing moment we are moving closer and closer and closer to the return of christ and that should make us as the church as the body of christ be full of joy be full of confidence be full of praise as we look forward to that day knowing that there's a day coming where all pain all shame all guilt all wars all crime all of these things that play will be done day is coming closer and so this text is given to direct us it is coming are you ready and so i think that is a question we have to ask are we ready for that day and the primary way to answer is have you believed in jesus christ as your lord and savior all throughout the bible the point of the bible is that god has sent his son jesus christ to die on a cross that we who believe in him would be forgiven of our sins be adopted into the family of God, and have eternal life with God. And apart from the grace of Jesus, th there's, there's judgment because we are born sinful. And so I just simply, before we move on in chapter 11, are, can you look forward to that day? Can you look forward to the seventh trumpet? Do you, do you yearn for that day? Or do you tremble because you don't know what will happen on that day? I encourage you, if you have not yet believed in Jesus, to, to trust in him today. If you have questions, I would love to talk to you. I know others here would love to talk to you. Um, there's no more important question. Verse 9, John goes to the angel. He takes the scroll. He eats it. It's sweet like honey in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. I, I think that's because the message is bitter and sweet. It's sweet for the church. It is sweet because it brings glory to God. But it's bitter in that there is a judgment that is coming. And now we have John is going to deliver the message. And I think that's, that's what happens as we go into chapter 11. John is now received. He's told in verse 11, I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, which is in kings. That went in and out. We'll see if it lasts. We changed batteries last week. We'll see. Um, kind of waiting to see if it's going to happen again. Uh, so chapter 11 what we have is now John's going to deliver this message. And that's what I just want us to look at this time. There's a lot here, a lot here. And just so you know, I always have a hard time not talking about every single little thing because I like that. So I have tried to, to simplify and I am trying to make sure we get through here. Uh, so there will be things that we will not talk about here, but feel free if you'd like to talk about them later or text them in, we can definitely do that. Uh, but number one, we begin that there is a war that we are engaged in. 
I think that's what John wants us to see, is that we are engaged in a battle. First, we notice that there are things that are measured, and there are things that are not measured. And you see what the difference is? Those that are measured are protected, and those that are not measured are not protected. So see, we see verse 1, I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Rise, measure the temple, the altar, those who worship. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For, that operates as because, here's the reason, it is given over to the nations, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. What is measured is not trampled, what is not measured is trampled. So what is measured? What is protected? So we have the, we have the temple, the altar, and those who worship. Now there are some who are going to who look at these and, and they believe they speak, speak of a physical temple that will be rebuilt um, however, I think it's best to see that these all point to pictures of the church and God's presence with the church. And there's many, many reasons we can give, but throughout the New Testament, the word temple is almost exclusively associated with the presence of God and the church. Exclusively. The first Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen. Do you not know that you are God's temple? This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians church. You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, the church, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. So see, in the Old Testament there was a physical temple, but that was a shadow, is what we are told. The real temple, which we go through in Hebrews chapter ten, is Christ. Christ is the real temple, and his church in Christ thus becomes the real temple because we become one with Christ. And so the people of God in Christ become the very dwelling place of God. One commentator said this, Without exception, in Revelation, temple never refers to a literal or historical temple, but either to a heavenly temple or as God's presence dominating the new age, like in chapter 21, where we see now God is with his people for all of eternity. So, very likely because of those and a host of other reasons, the word temple indicates God's presence with his people here on earth, the church. The word altar, most likely, is used to signify that Christians are called to to sacrifice their lives for Christ. He calls us as living sacrifices. In fact, if you remember in chapter 6, we see that before God, there is an altar, and who is on that altar? The, the martyrs are crying out to God. Those saints who have died before us. And so it's most likely pulling back to the very, very fact that as Christians, we are called to be living sacrifices for God. And then, of course, it says... Um, those who worship at the altar, um, meaning, of course, the church. Now notice, the outer court and the holy city are not measured. But I think these are also references to the church. I think they're also references to the church. Um, and so, so what, the reason I say it is, it appears the church is persecuted, is protected, but also persecuted at the same time. That we are protected and yet vulnerable. Now think about that. That would take us back to chapter 7. And, and remember, God says, my people are sealed. They're numbered. They're protected. So I think we have, okay, we're sealed, sealed, we're protected. We are spiritually protected by God, and yet we are physically vulnerable in this world. Do you know that? physically vulnerable. We know protection does not mean we won't die because throughout Revelation, we've seen that. And throughout church history, we've seen that. Christians have died. And so we know we're not talking physical, like invincibility, but yet spiritually, we are protected. We've been measured by God. He knows us. He sealed us. He protects us. And so how long will this spiritual protection and physical persecution last? Well, we're told, verse 2, that the city will be trampled for 42 months. Now, interesting, in chapter 13, verse 5, which is a very similar passage, we're told the beast will attack the saints for 42 months. So twice in Revelation, 42 months is a time of the saints being persecuted. 
twice, 42 months is used that way. But if you look at, in verse 3, we are told that for 1,260 days, we are protected to proclaim the gospel. That we will be his witnesses and prophesy. And um, in chapter 12, verse 6, we're told the church will be nourished by God, protected for 1,260 days. So 1,260 seems to be a time frame communicating protection, while 42 months seems to be a time frame indicating persecution. Um, and 30, 30 days was the typical way they did the calendar. 30 times three and a half years would be 1,260 days or 42 months. So it's, it's the same time frame. So we're not looking at different time frames. It's a different way of looking at the time frame. Does that make sense? Same time frame. One, we're looking at it as 42 months of persecution, or we're looking at it as 1,260 days of protection. Same time frame, different ways to look at it. Does that make sense? Tracking, mostly? Now, some people will interpret these time frames literally, believe that there will be a three and a half years of, of specific tribulation and persecution at the end, but as we've interpreted just about all of Revelation symbolically, I think it's best to continue that way. For one, this message is meant to strengthen the original hearers. As they hear this, they need to go, we can stand from, we are protected, and yes, we are spiritually or physically vulnerable. The original readers were in persecution, so we know this was extremely applicable to them. And the genre of the book is one of apocalyptic, which tells us we should first look at how we interpret symbolically. Um, so bringing all that together, we have 42 months, 1,260 days, referring to persecution and protection, which is most likely, if you remember um, the last half, of the seventh week in Daniel chapter 9, which we were in earlier this year, and which refers to the times in between Jesus' coming. That's what we're looking at. The three and a half years is symbolic time, 42 months, 1,260 days between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And what we're told is there will be spiritual protection and physical persecution because there's a war. There's a war that takes place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we've seen that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right? See, God's people, God's place, it's the kingdom of God. It's a small microcosm of the kingdom of God. In Genesis 3, Satan comes in, tempts, so that the, the kingdom of the world is attacking. And what we then see is because of that, sin has entered into the world and ever since then, these two, world, these two kingdoms have been at war with one another. In fact, Jesus, if you remember in John 15, he told us many times that if you follow me, you will be persecuted. Which is why he told us, count the cost. Count the cost. We don't try to rush people into the kingdom of God. We don't try to get people just to say a prayer as fast as we can and dunk them in the water. We want them to know who Jesus is, and what he is calling us to. In fact, John 15, let me read verse 18 and 19. This is Jesus speaking. So just think this. This is Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So why does the world hate you? Because I chose you. Why does the world hate you? Because by grace you've been made alive. Why does the world hate you? Because I brought you out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of this world, and I brought you into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son of God. Do you know that? That's the way that the Bible describes the Christian life. It is one of war against the, the, the kingdom of this world. And constantly we are in battle. That is the picture of of the Christian life as we wait for the return of Jesus. So how is it that we fight? I think that's what he gets into here. I think he wants to show what our role is. How do we fight? What is it that we do? And so let me just tell you what I think this passage is saying, and then I'll tell you how I got there. All right, so I'll tell you first, and then I'll tell you how I got there. Um, I, I believe um, the two witnesses that we're going to see 
the two olive trees, and the two lampstands are all representing uh, the church or the spirit working in the church. And while we are here on earth, I believe what we have here is our role is to represent God and proclaim his gospel message, which is one of judgment and repentance in this world. Um, We don't battle with swords, but we do so in prayer with our Bibles and with words as we proclaim the gospel. Uh, So let me tell you why I think that that's the right interpretation here. Um, When we look at the two witnesses, if you see that, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days. Who are the two witnesses? Now, some will say there'll be two people like Elijah, like Moses, raised up in the last day, um, dead dead, um, prophetic uh, um, figures from the Old Testament made back alive. And that's an idea. Um, But all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, two witnesses were always required to validate or confirm a charge. Two witnesses, Matthew 18, are needed if we're going to to bring a charge against someone, if we're calling someone to repentance. First Timothy, we're told, if you're going to go to an elder you need and correct him, have two witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidences of two witnesses or of three shall a three witnesses shall a charge be established. So always has there needed to be multiple witnesses for the purposes of establishing a charge. So I do believe what is happening in this text is not only a description of the way that we live, but also a justification for the judgment that is going to come upon this world. God is saying, you want to know why the judgment is coming? I've sent forth witnesses to go and proclaim a message. The way the world responds to these witnesses will give proof why I will bring judgment upon them. Does that make sense? So if the world falls down and bows down before these guys and man, we believe, then there won't be a judgment that will be had because everyone will believe. But if the world rejects these witnesses, if they say, no, I don't believe what you have said, then when we come to the seventh trumpet and God's bring judgment, we see he is just and he's righteous. The gospel has been proclaimed. He has sent people to share the gospel and they have rejected it. And that's what we see in this text. So God is not only going to show us our role on this world as we proclaim the message, but he is showing why he will bring judgment upon the unrighteous because they willingly rebel against the very rule of God and reject his gospel message and that is what we see in our text so so that's the two witnesses um we saw in chapter one that lampstands represent the church do you remember that there's a vision of jesus he's walking amongst the lampstands and we're not we don't have to guess what they are because in chapter one verse 20 we're told the seven lampstands represent the seven churches which represent all churches so we know jesus is with the church so most likely lampstands, just simply, they meant church here. They probably mean church here. And if you remember the seven churches, how many of those churches had not compromised? How many? Two. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, is that why he chose two? I don't know. But I think it could work. Um, but, but lampstand, elsewhere in Revelation, means church believe we have it here also. But I've also said, and every week, Revelation pulls from the Old Testament, right? So we're probably going to have an Old Testament clue on what we're looking at here. And so largely, I'm just going to tell you, go read Zechariah chapter 4. So that, that could be homework for you today. You might need to read the first few chapters of Zechariah to kind of gain the context what's happening there. But in Zechariah chapter 4, there's, there's a lampstand and there's two olive trees providing oil to the lampstand. And what this symbolizes is that the Spirit of God is empowering God's people to accomplish His purposes. That's largely what we see. There's a figure named Joshua who's a high priest. There's also another guy named Zerubbabel, which that's a fun one to spell. And, uh, and he represents the king. And so God, through his spirit, is empowering. That's what the vision of lampstand and, and all trees represents, is empowering his people, the king and the priest, to accomplish his purposes. 
And does anyone remember in chapter 1, I believe verse 6, what, he, what John calls the church? We are a kingdom and priests. So in the Old Testament, we have this picture of the Spirit working through a priest and a king, which ultimately points to Jesus because he's the one who is the king priest. But we now, because we are in Christ, also have this royal, kingly role and priestly role in that we represent the rule of God here on earth as we bring forth the message of God to the people of earth. So we have this role of king and priest here. So I think that's what he's doing. Now you might be a little confused. Uh, the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, I believe are all pointing to the church for those various reasons. And the whole point is that we are the people of God, given the Spirit of God to accomplish His purposes, that we stand firm in this battle, not by our might, but by the Spirit who is in us. And then we're told some very strange things. You might be going, well, I thought we were already, already told strange things. Um, verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. They, no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So if I'm right, and, and these are the church, then this is our power. We can breathe fire. And you're kind of like, what? Because um, that's kind of like what I am. Uh, so is that new to you? Have you practiced this lately? <laughs> we'll have classes later. Um, no, no, we won't. Just, we won't. Um, now again, some people will take these literally, believe there will be two Old Testament figures who will be redeemed in the last three and a half years, and they will actually have these powers, and they will actually breathe out fire and actually call down um, things from heaven. Uh, I don't believe that's true. Uh, but what is happening here? I think that's the point. Remember, Old Testament imagery informs uh, a lot of, of what we're doing here. And so, who had the power to do these things in the Old Testament? If you remember, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, and he stopped the rain because of Israel's idolatry. And when Ahaziah, the king of Israel, sent 50 men to capture Elijah, this is what he says. <coughs> if I'm a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Gone. Another 50 guys show up. Says, Elijah, we're going to take you. All right, if I'm a man of God, fire's going to come down from heaven and consume you. That's what happens. Another 50 guys show up. It's just comical in the Bible at times. And this guy just falls down. Elijah, you are a man of God. And like, he's like, stop. Like, I, no fire. And, and then God's like, all right, you can go with this guy. So what's the point, though? The fire pointed towards his authority that he had. That this man is empowered by the Spirit with the authority of God. He also is the guy who made it not rain. I think I said, he made it not rain because of Israel's idolatry, which culminated, do you remember, in what awesome scene in the Old Testament? 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Kings 18. It's the 400 prophets of Baal versus Elijah. It's like the coolest scene in the Old Testament. They're going to like, you know, try to get their God, Baal, to bring down fire. Elijah is going to completely douse his sacrifice with water, and then he's going to call for God to bring down fire from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice, the water, the rocks, the ground. And so what we have here is, is Elijah is a man with a message from God with the authority of God. Okay, so that's, that's what these are pointing to. And then, who, who's Moses? Everyone remember Moses? What'd he do? He did that little thing about going to Egypt, right? And, and he brought ten plagues. Like, and it says here, verse, verse 6, and have the power over waters to turn them into blood. Which plague was that? Was that one, two, or three? Multiple choice. It's one. First one. He turns water into blood. And so clearly, and this says, and every kind of plague. 
So clearly we have a reference to Moses, which, who is Moses? He is God's man with his message and authority, right? So Elijah and Moses represent Old Testament figures coming with the very word of God. And what happened to those who rejected them? What happened to Egypt? Experienced the judgment of God. What happened to the 50 men that questioned? What happened to the prophets of Baal that questioned Elijah? Destroyed and killed. So rather than think we're just jumping into some future period where we have physical people actually breathing out fire, what I think we have here is we have references to Old Testament figures who came with the full authority and power of God, with the message of God. And when they were rejected, we see God's judgment comes down. And now we are told that we are in a battle against this world. We will be physically persecuted, but we go forth with a message. And our message is one of judgment and repentance. That's what it means that they wear sackcloth. The two witnesses. Go back to, I think, verse 3. And I would grant my two witnesses, they'll prophesy uh, for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth because of the judgment and repentance that they're calling for. But will the world answer? Will they receive the gospel? Will they hear the message or will they reject it? I think, I think we just need to pause. This is where we're at. If you're a believer, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And this world, because of sin, because of rejected God, because of idolatry, will face judgment. We are called by God. You have been saved by God to be an ambassador of God, filled with His Spirit, given His word that we would go into this world and share the gospel. We are called to confront people's world views that they would see themselves as sinners and in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. That's always been the message. Jesus, Matthew 5, 14, he said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Verse, verse 16, he said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 28, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And remember what the last part is? Verse 20, it's the reason we can do it. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He has given us his spirit that we go with his authority and his presence into this world. So this is not something you and I do on our own. So when you're thinking about your neighbor, when you're thinking about your coworker, the person you're sitting next to, man, how do I share the gospel? I can't do this. You're right, you can't. Like that has never been the point. You don't have any power to save them but God in you does. That's what we're called to do. We're called to share the gospel. And it's when we share this gospel that we will see people go from sons or from slaves to sons. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Hear this. Our lives are to be spent redirecting people in front of the gates of hell. That's what we do. That's the message. It is, you might have hobbies, you might have work, you might be a mom, you might be a dad, you might be retired, and, and those are all cool things, right? Those are only the very means in which you live this out. That's the point. We have all these amazing roles, not so they take the place of sharing the gospel, but they provide us avenues of where and how we share the gospel. The question we asked is, where are you engaging? Where are we engaging? Where are we sharing the gospel at? So I encourage you, think there. Who are you currently beginning to engage and share the gospel with? And there's, 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 place at the bottom of your, your bulletin. I encourage you today, before you leave, write down at least one name. Just who's placed in my life that I know 
this, this guy, this person, they need Jesus. I just start praying for him. Start looking at how do I start having this conversation with them? And remember, it's not your power that will save them. Whose power is it? It's God in you. We are simply the representatives. We're simply the ambassadors. By rejecting us, they ultimately are rejecting God. Remember that? When Paul persecutes the church, what does Jesus say when he confronts him and acts? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? But, but Paul is hurting Christians. And, Christ, and Jesus says, when you hurt the church, you hurt me. To reject the church is to ultimately reject God. That's what we're doing here. We're going forth into the world, proclaiming the message of this world. And some will die. Okay, we just need to know that. We see that in the, in the fifth seal, there will be saints that will, that will be killed. We see that here. We are spiritually protected and yet physically vulnerable. So we don't ask the question, is it safe? That's not the question. And we did talk a couple weeks ago. Yes, we're, still called, we're supposed to be wise. We're not supposed to be reckless. We, we covered that. But we don't ask, is it safe? Because of course it's not safe. We're in a battle. This is a war. We have the message of hope, though. We have the message that this world needs. We have the message that does bring people from the chains of the kingdom of darkness into the beautiful presence of God for all of eternity. Amen. Man, so I just encourage you, who are you engaging? Let's not be a church that we just gather here and we think we're good because went to church on Sunday, I read my Bible this week, I did Wednesday night, I did this. Like, that's great. But that better be serving a purpose and not just checking boxes. So, so who are you engaging? And do not be satisfied with, well, I, I don't do that. I'm not gifted. I don't, I don't know any unbelievers. You don't know unbelievers. There's a point of repentance right there. We're called to move that way. If you don't know anyone, find someone. We share the gospel because we have the hope of this world. That's why we've been saved. That's why we are saved. Now, I say all that. It doesn't mean it's easy. I don't mean at all to say it's easy. So don't, don't misinterpret me. Oh, man, you're supposed to go. It must be easy for him. No, it's, it's, it's hard for all of us. But, but you know that first time you got on the bike and you fell off? And you fell off again, and you fell off again, and you fell down and scraped up your whole knee. But then remember you started riding, and you never fell off again? That's kind of like how it is when we start evangelizing. It's hard. It's bumpy. We fall down a lot. Wow, it sometimes really hurts. Maybe not them as much as us, because we're like, we're really bad at that. Um, but we get better, and we get better, and we get better. And you know what? God uses all those efforts, and he loves it. He loves it. All right, last point. But we are promised victory. The victory we are promised. So see, we, we don't do this from a position of defeat. Do you know that? We don't do this going, man, I hope this whole gospel thing works out. We've already been given pictures. In fact, the, the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, remember? Remember the interlude? Remember who stands before the throne? People from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. We know the gospel wins. We know that one day before the throne, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language present before God. So we come and we, we, we engage from a position of victory. We know the victory's won. And yet, victory looks a little different than what we might have thought. And that's what we see here. Verse 7, we're told that when the church has finished their testimony, the beast, which is most likely the powers of this world, the kingdoms of this world, um, will, will rise up from the bottomless pit and war with the church and conquer. The martyred bodies will be left in the streets of the great city. Now notice, the great city, Sodom, Egypt, and the place where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. Now again, not literally in these cities, but these are all places that have represented the rule or have rejected the rule of God. And then notice verse 10. This is crazy. So they martyr the saints. It looks like the world is one. And then they exchange presents. It's Christmas. Like, like I was talking to Ben about this. Like we were, and I was like, dude, I don't even know what to do with this verse. 
Like they give presents. Like, hey, the church is dead. Here's a present. That's the mentality. And let that just go. This is all serving to show why God will bring judgment, right? The world throws a party when the church has been defeated. And they're so given the thorn in our flesh. Now think about that. Isn't that what Moses was to Pharaoh? Pharaoh hated Moses. That's what Elijah was to Ahab and Jezebel. They hated Elijah. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we read that many of the prophets were killed, cut in half, torn, beaten. The world hates the prophets. So what we have here is as we take this role of bringing forth the message of God, the world hates us and they're so glad when they think that they have defeated us. And then we're told that after three and a half days, God will bring the dead back to life and bring judgment upon the world. Now, we could get lost in a lot of details here. Um, but, but the main point, um, we, we have three and a half days. That's a pretty short period of time compared to 1,260. So now whether this is like three and a half days, like right before the seventh trumpet, or this represents short periods of time throughout church history where it looks like the church has been defeated, um, good cases can be made for both. But what we know is that there comes time or times when it's going to look like the church has been defeated. But are they? Are we? No, no we're not. We read that God will breathe life back in, bring them with him into his presence, and bring judgment upon the world. So let me just make a few comments. We don't trust in appearances. Okay, let's not do that. We don't trust in appearances. Do you remember the story of Gideon? 300 guys against like the million man army. If we trust in appearances, Gideon dies every time. But we don't, and Gideon wins. We don't trust in size either. Remember the story of David and Goliath? If we think size matters, David's dead every time. Yet, David wins. We don't trust in death or look at death as an obstacle because think of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes to the cross. It's by dying he defeats and wins. Right? It's through his death we have victory. What we saw in chapter 6, the martyred saints. It's through the death of the saints God does what? He advances the kingdom and ushers in the, uh, and ushers in the return of Christ. So not even the death of saints is ever a waste. What we see throughout the Bible is that God particularly uses weakness and suffering and death as a means of proclaiming his glory. That's what we see. And so we're going to go, and we're going to go proclaim a message, and it's going to look like at a time that we're going to be defeated, just like it looks on, on, on Good Friday when Jesus was placed in the tomb, it looks God's purposes have been defeated. But have they? No, a short period of time where it looks like there's defeat results in great glory. God, what we see, brings down judgment. And then notice the words. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I don't really know what to do with that right now. That's either People have now repented. They've seen God's judgment and they repent and they give glory or in God's judgment upon them, God is glorified. Both could very well be true. But I think we need to know we live in a harsh world, right? We live in a world corrupted by sin and only by grace are we saved. And that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. God saves us, brings us into his kingdom, gives us his spirit, protects us spiritually that he would send us out as his ambassadors to proclaim the message. And we are protected. There is nothing that can separate us. Do you know that? Do you know that, church? There's nothing that separates us from him. Not even death. Which is why we can risk everything and not really risk it because... In Christ, we have everything. And so we can, we can proclaim the gospel in the face of death, 
knowing that we cannot be removed from the kingdom of God and that as the world rejects us, and it will, now as we go forth, you will find many people that will come to know Jesus. But what do we know also? Many people will reject. And even their rejection will serve to glorify God because as he brings down his judgment, there is no unrighteousness in his judgment. There's no one going to be able to say, you know, God, I think they would have repented. No, I sent my two witnesses. I sent my olive stand. I sent my lampstands. They all went and they proclaimed the message. They represented my authority. They spoke my words. Nope. There's no injustice in God. This text is meant to prove, to show the justness of God as he brings about his judgment. And it also shows our role as we proclaim the gospel. And what's the end result? God is glorified. And we will spend eternity with him, enjoying him. That is where we're at. So I encourage you, as we leave, as we take this meal, let's pray for strength. Let's pray for boldness. Let's pray that we proclaim this message. Let's pray that whatever fear, whatever timidity we have, and and we have it, right? Do you ever have it? You can raise hands. Do you ever have fear? Do you ever wonder, man, what are they going to think? Let's pray that we be much more concerned with giving this message that has the power to save. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this message. God, you are a good and holy and righteous God. And in this text, we see that you will bring a judgment. Your seventh trumpet will come, and there will be judgment. And yet, you are incredibly gracious. You have sent witnesses all throughout this world that we would proclaim your message, that that there would be many that would be saved. And may we know that there will be many who will be saved. And yet, we know that also, as they reject us, they ultimately reject you. And God, we we pray for repentance. We pray for repentance for people we talk to. We pray for more and more to be saved. God, help us as a church to engage and evangelize the lost so much more. Help us locally and globally to have such a stronger presence. God, I pray. I pray we would know your spirit is with us. And that we would proclaim your name. Knowing that, God, you will be glorified. And may we long May we yearn for the seventh trumpet where we'll be forever in your presence. In your name, Jesus, amen. That we're texting in. Um, Will God wait for us to find someone to tell about him or is it a do it now? So I'm guessing the question is, um, like if we don't tell the gospel, will there not be some people that enter? Like will some people be left out? How urgent is this? Um, I would say it's urgent. The seventh trumpet is coming. Uh, So we have a responsibility, and yet we also know, if you remember uh, from the the chapter 7, that God has numbered the saints. He knows all who will be saved. So there's not going to be anyone left out. So let's not think that, oh man, God had wanted a few people and just it didn't work out. So let's not think that way. God has a number, and those people will specifically come to him, and we do have the role. So there is urgency. Um, And I think... I think, and and this is where I think a lot of us are at times, if we think I'll let someone else do it, we need to repent of that. I think there's a a disobedience within us, most likely a fear of man in us, that's probably there, Uh, which that kind of leads into question number two. I love these questions. Um, What do you find difficult, pastor, in sharing the gospel with unbelievers? So I'm guessing this is mostly directed at me and uh, how I find it hard. Um, I, I think the hard part for me is, is, you know, it's easy for me to tell people that I'm a Christian uh, because a lot of people say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then I think there's that idea then that at that moment it just comes out naturally for me. Um, it doesn't. I think the hardest part is... is it's not so much talking about God or sometimes the church, but then asking, so are you a Christian? And then when they say no, where do I go from there? I, sometimes that's probably the hardest part. And, and I think it's that fear, just fear of man where, 
all right, are we, are we going to do this right here? <laughs> like sometimes it's that. Um, all right, all right, get in. And it's that, oh, man, I, I got to call this guy a sinner going to hell. Literally, I mean, that's, that's what we do, right? Like that's the hard part. It's like, and so it's going to risk a friendship. It's going to risk a relationship. And so what I, I struggle with, the idolatry of holding that above obedience to God. And that, that's where I struggle at times. And there's times I feel like I do it great. And there's other times I'm like, it's hard. There's times I walk away, I'm like, man, I, I, I think I just totally bombed right there. Um, but that's where I need prayer. I need prayer that, that as because it's easy kind of for me to get in the conversation, and I get pretty far in it, but there comes a moment where you know you gotta, you gotta ask the next question. Why aren't you a Christian? Okay. Do you believe in God? You know, and start pressing in on those kind of things. That can be hard. That's hard for me at times. Um, before we do the offering, um, we forgot to do an announcement earlier today, and there's something really exciting coming up in January, 